Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. My name is Phil Edwards. You listen to my podcast, Prepare to Die. Well, Phil, in that case, I have something to tell you. What's that? I'm not left-handed. Damn it. I've got something to tell you. <laughs> What's that? I'm not left-handed either. Oh, inconceivable. Uh, you keep using that word. I, I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> no more rhyming. I mean, all right, we get, we got to stop this because we could go on all day. Uh, but I think by now people probably know at least one of the movies we're doing. But uh, welcome to the show. As you can see, we are excited about this episode because we are tackling one of the great all-time movies. Phil, tell people what movie that is if they haven't already figured out, as well as what else we've got in store for them in this episode. That's right. It's the Flubber episode. <laughs> You've been waiting for it. It's finally here. Uh, yes, this week we're going to be doing after the endings for The Princess Bride, hence all the quotes and silliness at the start, and also Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker. And we'll be doing our top 10 films of 2004. Yes, it's a, a good mix of, of things. we got an Oscar-winning film. Uh, we've got one of the greatest comedies of all time. And we've got a year of movies that, uh, well, we'll save judgment on that until we get to that part of the show. <laughs> So, Mike, we face each other as God intended, sportsmanlike, no tricks, no weapons, skill against skill alone. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, I know everybody wants to hear our endings for The Princess Bride, so let's start with The Hurt Locker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 2008 film directed by Catherine Bigelow, The Hurt Locker, or it could also be called What Hawkeye and Falcon Did First. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I forgot that it was uh, Anthony yeah. Mackie in there as well as Jeremy Renner. Yeah, it's also got, who else is in it? Guy Pearce. He was, yep, he yep. was in it briefly. And I'm sure there's somebody else. But anyway, yeah, so this one is set in 2004. And we're doing, later on, we're going to be doing the top 10 films of 2004. But that's yeah. by the by. Didn't even plan that. I know, but uh, we follow Sergeant First Class William James, played by Jeremy Renner, hence the Hawkeye thing. He becomes team leader of a U.S. Army Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit, uh, EOD for short, in the Iraq war. And uh, this is because the previous leader was killed while trying to defuse a bomb. His team includes Sergeant J.T. Sanborn, played by Anthony McKee, and Specialist Owen Eldridge, played by Brian Geraghty. But they find James's methods and attitudes to be reckless, which causes tension among the team. James also befriends a local Iraqi youth who he nicknames Beckham, who sells DVDs and plays football with him. During a routine mission, Sanborn considers killing James by accidentally triggering an explosion, but doesn't go through with it. Uh, on a warehouse raid, James finds a body he believes to be Beckham, which has a bomb implanted in it. And during this, a friend of Eldridge's is killed in the evacuation. And James goes a bit crazy and breaks into an Iraqi's house, seeking revenge for the death of Beckham, but finds nothing. Uh, on the next mission, James decides to track insurgents, resulting in Eldridge being captured. James and Sanborn rescue him, but end up accidentally shooting him in the leg. And the next day, James sees Beckham walking past him, but Beckham says nothing. A mission two days before the rotation and sees Sanborn and James unable to get a bomb vest off a civilian who dies in the explosion. And then rotation comes. James returns to his ex-wife and infant son who both live in his house. He's back in the USA. James finds civilian life boring and he confesses to his son 
can't actually understand what he's saying. But he confesses that there's only one thing that he knows he truly loves. So he starts another tour of duty with Delta Company on a 365-day rotation. And that's the Hurt Locker. Very nicely done. Thank you. It's uh, What did you think of the film? You know, I... I like the film. I think it's I think it's a good film, but it's one of those films that I've seen once and I really never need to watch again. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it should have won the the Oscar for Best Picture, especially over Avatar. And I, I realize people like to pick on Avatar now. You know, it's it's yeah, yeah. It's James Cameron. It's sort of got that that raging success backlash that films tend to get. But I always like to see um, the Academy Award films that are innovative or groundbreaking or game-changing in some way. And Avatar certainly was that. Yeah, it really pushed it. It was like a huge big demo reel for 3D. Really showed yeah. what we can do with it. I wasn't a fan of the story that much, but I was visually it was amazing. Right, but James Cameron really succeeded in creating a, a whole nother world in such a realistic fashion that you didn't doubt that you were on another world. It, it didn't look like a movie that was necessarily CGI. It looked like a movie that took place that was filmed on another world, you know. So yeah, um, yeah. but the Academy often takes those movies and does not reward them with the best picture Oscar. <clears throat> La La Land. Um, so, you know, I like it, but that's not a film I'm a, an overwhelming fan of. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I don't think Avatar should have won Best Picture, but I, it's definitely up there with the technical side of things. But The Hurt Locker, yeah, it's a, it's a strange one. It's a good film, but I don't think it's, yeah, Best Picture. Yeah, but, it's just not uh, all that special. Yeah, but it's a very solid, great direction, solid acting, so we can't complain about that. And it's a, it's an, it's, it's a good film to watch the first time, especially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that's uh, that was the film. Uh, what do you have happening after the ending? Okay, well, it's only three months into James's next tour when he gets a courier package from the States. Opening it, he realizes it's divorce papers from his wife. Sadly, he isn't that surprised. He knew when he left this last time that it might be the end for them, but he could just never get his wife to understand what it was like to be him. He signs the papers with no real emotion, stuffs them in the return envelope, and sets them out to be mailed. Then he turns back to the bottle of whiskey on his desk and pours himself a glass. The next day, nursing a wicked hangover, he sets out on patrol. It isn't long before he gets the call. There's a suspected IED that needs defusing. When his team arrives, his partners Hanson and Penhall clear the area of civilians while James inspects the device. He's never seen one like this before. It's clearly totally homemade by an amateur. He looks it over for a minute, then mutters to himself, Hmm, red wire or green wire? Eh, what the hell, let's go red wire today. He clips the red wire, and the device's power shuts down. And that's my day after. Hmm, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, he clips the red wire, and that's where we're going to leave it for now. But then I thought, nah, I don't want to do that to you. <laughs> okay, cool. I, I'm intrigued. Okay. All right, so let's, uh, meanwhile, let, thank you. Let's hear what's going on in, in your day after. Okay, James goes back to work. There were always more bombs that need defusing, more explosives that need disarming. It never seems to end, and the days seem to blend into one. James is not quite as reckless as he once was, as he begins to realise that the strange addiction he has for danger could cause problems, and he doesn't want to cause harm to his colleagues, as he can't have that in his conscience. Instead, he saves countless lives, and he contemplates seeing a counsellor, but there's always another mission, and he never has the time. Another day comes, and another explosive device. It's a pretty standard one, and James gets to work. He makes it safe, and then walks slowly back to the rest of his team. He takes another step forward, and hears a click. There is a loud noise and everything goes black. And that's my day after. Hmm. Uh-oh. Danger. Hmm. I want to see where it's going. Well, maybe this is the first one after the ending for me where that's it. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's it. Yeah. Immediate aftermath. It's black and it, and it stays black. black. It's black. Yep. Yeah. All right. 
How much more black could it be? Okay, but that's uh, none that was, more black. Yeah, that's. Uh, I got you. I got the reference. Excellent. That's my day after. But what's going on then with your immediate aftermath? He's just defused a bomb. Yes. Well, three months later, another three months later, I should say, James is sat in front of his commanding officer, Major Aoki. He's just finished receiving a verbal beatdown from the major for his quote reckless tactics. There's nobody else on the base that wants to partner with James because his reputation as a loose cannon has gotten out of control. So, son, Major Aoki says, what the hell am I supposed to do with you? Throw you in jail? Ship you back to the States? Promote you? James looks at him and chuckles. It's an ugly sound without a trace of humor. Just give me a driver and point me toward a bomb, sir. That's all I got. The Major looks at him for a minute, fixing him with a good, hard stare. Before he can say anything, his phone rings. He picks it up, listens for a minute, then hangs up. Well, son, the Major says finally, looks like you're getting your wish. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Ooh. Okay, so I think I think there's going to be another bomb involved. It's certainly possible. It does seem <laughs> does seem like you know ripe for that type of situation to pop up. So excellent. Okay. All right. Let's hear what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Then does he survive? I need to know. Okay. A few months have passed, and James is with his physical therapist. He still finds it hard to cope with the fact he lost a leg, but everything is healing well, and the prosthetic leg he has does make things a little easier. There's still a long way to go, and dark thoughts of ending it have lessened with every session that he has with the psychiatrist. He sees his son more. And that helps. He realises how selfish and self-obsessed he'd been, but knowing that he saved lives of many others does justify it a little bit. During a break in his physio, he watches the news. There have been a number of explosions in various cities, and they've been attributed to terrorist cells. There's some brief footage of some explosive devices that have been recovered during investigations. James recognises some of them, as he's diffused many similar types over the past few years. Then he pauses. Another device, different to the others, flashes on the screen. It's only for a moment, but James goes cold. He's seen something like it before. He designed it. Ooh. And that's my immediate aftermath. I like it. Mm. You got a little a little, a little more intrigue in yours than I went with. That's, that's very cool. Right then, so what's going on with your long term after he had this call and got his wish? James sits next to Private Hoffs in the Jeep as she drives him to the hot zone. He would consider it fate that the Major had gotten a call about a serious hostage situation right while he was in his office, but he didn't believe in fate. Hell, he didn't believe in just about anything anymore. When they reach the perimeter of the bombed-out school complex, Hoff stops the jeep and says, This is as far as I go, sir. I'm sorry, but orders. James grunts at her, grabs his bag, and walks into the building. When he gets in, he finds that there are some 30 schoolchildren all tied together, with a bomb strapped to the biggest child. James inspects the explosive, but he soon realizes it's pretty amateur work. In minutes, he diffuses it and sends the children running out of the school. As the last of the children run out and leave the abandoned building empty once again, one of them reminds him of his son. James takes a deep breath, pulls out a flask, and takes a long drink. Then he looks at the explosive device in his hand. Outside, Private Hoffs is reporting back on the radio that the situation is contained. She's mid-sentence when the force from the school building exploding knocks her back about 10 feet. When she regains her senses, she rushes into the rubble to find that while all the school children made it out safely, Sergeant James did not. She runs back to her radio, reports back to base, then sits in her jeep and waits for backup to arrive and secure the scene. And that's my ending. Ooh. Not one of my more cheerful ones, which, you know, is not usually the yeah, way I go. No, but, but it's very, very in keeping with the film. I yeah. thought so. It yeah, seemed yeah. to me it seemed to me that there's a, there, you know, clearly there's a self-destructive streak in him. And Yeah, I, he, was, he was heading that way. Yeah, I leave it to you to decide whether you think it was an accident or on purpose that the building exploded. I leave that to the listener. But definitely I thought that, you know. Yeah, I think, I uh, think it was Ultron. <laughs> well, that's a twist I hadn't considered, but that's certainly possible. <laughs> Post-credit sequence. <Yeah. laughs> right. 
All right. So meanwhile, let's hear what's going on with your long term, because I want to find out about this bomb. Okay. A few weeks have gone by, and James still needs to use crutches, but he now has a purpose. He is helping Homeland Security, who requested his aid when he contacted them about his findings. He'd almost been arrested for being part of it all, but clearer heads went out, and he was brought in. He explained how during his time in the EOD unit, he developed an explosive device that would be almost impossible to defuse. It was purely for theoretical reasons, an exercise to refine the devices that he'd worked on. He'd never written anything down, but he and a few other colleagues had discussed the matter. Those colleagues had been questioned and found innocent. Now there was one left. Howard Payne Jr. James went with the team to the small apartment in New York City. There they found Payne Jr. He was dead by his own hand. But next to him was one of his devices. James realised his design had been perfected. Telling the agents to clear out and evacuate the building, James took out a photo of his son, kissed it, and set to work. And that's my ending. I like it. So you're going to leave us, leave us not like hanging necessarily, but sort of one of those kind of classic movie endings where it's like, yeah, you let the let the listener or the viewer decide which way it's going to go. Yeah, just a ticking clock. Right. Or, or a spinning top, if you will. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That sort yeah, of a yeah. more ambiguous ending. But so that's uh, it's cool. I like it. Yeah. Very good. Thank you very much. I, I envision the bit in the city, the bit afterwards when he gets back to America, like a 70s gritty kind of French connection. Style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I can totally like that. see that. Yeah. I think that's actually how I was picturing it in my head. Mm. So, Excellent. well done. Well done. My work here is done. I'm going on to do. <laughs> but not quite, because you still have to bring us the trivia locker. Yes, I do. Okay, Catherine Bigelow said that no scene filmed was left out of the final cut. Wow. And they used uh, about four or more handheld super 16mm cameras to make it, to shoot the film in a documentary style. And they had over they had about 200 hours of footage, wow. which is an awful lot of thing of uh, footage. Uh, Catherine Bigelow wasn't sure about making the film, but her ex-husband, James Cameron, convinced her to do so. And the film got her an Oscar for Best Director, as we said before, one out over Avatar, so... James Cameron's probably going, yay, I made up for but inside he's going, <laughs> right. why I order? It was also yeah. the first film to win Best Picture that was directed by a woman. It was all, uh, and surprisingly, it was one of the lowest grossing Best Pictures as it made about $14 million domestically. Yep. And there was one more, what was the other one? And um, Jeremy Renner took actual bomb defusing training and on the film set, they used live bombs to increase the tension in the scene. <laughs> Much <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Colin Farrell, Willem Dafoe, and Charlize Theron were originally set to star, but that didn't happen. Hmm, interesting. Yes, but that's the Hurt Locker. All right, very good. Well, now it's the time everyone's been waiting for. It's time to get to one of the greatest movies ever, The Princess Bride. Yes, Princess Bride, uh, one of my favorite films. So much fun, and it's delightful. Yeah, I mean, I think that The Princess Bride really is... A generational classic, or, or I guess I should say an intergenerational classic, because I feel like it's it's one of those 80s films that doesn't feel like an 80s film, and you can watch it today, and it feels just yeah, as, yeah. as timeless and as fresh as it did when it was brand new. And I know that it's actually in my stack of movies to get to with my kids. They're right about the perfect age for it now. Uh, we haven't watched it yet, but I can't wait for them to see it. And I think that you know, 50 years from now, people will still be introducing that movie to their kids, and they'll love it just as much as we did you know, when it originally came out. It's just that good of a film. Because it's like, it deals with, it's a fairy tale, it deals with romance, it's also got the the whole framing device with the grandfather to, telling the story to his grandson, and it's just all things that we can all relate to. Yeah. And it's yeah. also very funny, very silly, and it's just got some great characters, and as we, we found out at the start, some great quotes. Oh, man, it's such a quotable movie. I, I it Really, we could fill an hour just quoting the film. I can, I can almost literally recite it from start to finish, you know, word for word as I watch it. It's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah so we should we uh do you want to crack on then and, and give us a rundown of what happens in the film yes 
So The Princess Bride, 1987, directed by Rob Reiner, starring Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, Chris Sarandon, Fred Savage, and Peter Falk, and based on the book by William Goldman, who is also a very successful uh, Hollywood screenwriter. Uh, I'm going to keep this pretty short, actually, because it's The Princess Bride. You've all seen it, and if you haven't seen it, you really should go watch it right now before you listen to another word of this podcast. (laughs) But make sure you come back. So. Here we go. A grandfather reads a book to his sick grandson. In the book, Buttercup loves Wesley. Wesley is killed by the dread pirate Roberts. Five years later, Buttercup is unhappily betrothed to Prince Humperdinck. She is kidnapped by Fezzik, Vizzini, and Inigo Montoya, who seeks revenge against a six-fingered man who killed his father. A mysterious man in black rescues Buttercup and eventually reveals that he is Wesley and that he wasn't killed by the dread pirate Roberts, but instead became his apprentice and eventually took over for him. Humperdinck's soldier, Count Rugen, kills Wesley and recapture Buttercup, but Wesley's only mostly dead and is revived. He, Fezzik, and Inigo Montoya mount a rescue in which Inigo discovers that it is Rugen who killed his father and kills him in revenge. They rescue Buttercup and ride off safely. At the end, the grandson asks the grandfather if they can read the book again tomorrow, to which he replies, as you wish, which of course was what Wesley would always say to Buttercup when she asked him to do something for him. No matter what it was, she would always say, he would always say, as you wish. And that's The Princess Bride. That was lovely. Thanks. I really didn't think I needed to go into too many details because I think people know this movie pretty well. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Phil, let's not keep people in suspense any longer. Go ahead and give us your day after. Okay. Years pass by uh, and the grandson, the boy named William, has become a man. One day while clearing out some of his old things from his parents' house, he found a book, The Princess Bride. Memories came flooding back of his grandfather reading it to him whenever he was ill. Then when his grandfather had become ill, William read it to him. When his grandfather finally died, William put the book away. On occasion, when it had crossed his mind, he had mentioned it to his friends, but nobody else had ever heard of the book. A curious thing to be sure, but William never got a chance to dig deeper, and the book had slowly faded from memory. Now, here it was before him. William excitedly opened the book, ready to once more read about the adventures of Wesley and Buttercup. As he turned the pages, he felt nothing but confusion. They were all blank. He looked through it again, and was about to put it down when he saw something. A few words in a scrawling handwritten note and a strange symbol. No, the note said, If you are reading this, we need your help. Wesley and Buttercup's daughter's gone missing. William, if you see this, you need to return. It was signed, Inigo Montoya. And that's where it ends. Well, I like that very much. I will take this opportunity to point out that Phil and I do not compare endings (laughs) uh, before we record. Um, I'm going to say this, Phil. Yeah. Not only did we both uh, kind of take the same approach here, but I think this may be actually the closest we've ever come on one of our Ooh, one of our okay. Endings. Okay. I, I, it, it's almost like we're telling the same story here. Oh, weird. Okay. So Hit me with I apologize it. for listeners if this gets a little repetitive. Oh, in- in- interesting. Yeah. So, 30 years later, Fred Peters sighs as he looks at the pile of dusty boxes. <laughs> he doesn't even know where to begin. What are you laughing at? Just the fact, yeah, it is similar. Yeah, right? Yeah, wow. He doesn't even know where to begin. His grandfather had amassed a lot of stuff over the course of his 65 years, and cleaning and organizing it all would be no easy task. It had been almost two decades since his grandfather had disappeared, and this storage unit was all that was left of him. Fred missed his grandfather greatly. After his parents had divorced, his grandfather had become both his father figure and his best friend. Throughout his teenage years, the old man would tell him fabulous tales of fantasy and adventure, and it always felt like he was speaking from first-hand experience rather than just telling stories out of books. After Fred's grandpa disappeared, he was never the same. He spent most of his 20s in a deep depression, causing him to lose his job, his friends, and most of his money. Now he got by working odd jobs and part-time work when he could find it. As he rummaged through the boxes, a book fell out, The Princess Bride. (laughs) 
Fred had forgotten all about that book, but it was one of his favorites when he was a kid. Crazy. Yeah. He opened it up and was surprised to find that the inside was hollowed out. Inside of it was a weird necklace and a note. <laughs> he read it, right? He read it and it said, Fred, when the time is right, you'll know. Come find me. And with that, the necklace started to glow. And that's my day after, which bears no similarity whatsoever, clearly, to your day after. Holy crap. This this is could be considered inconceivable. <laughs> it really could. <laughs> uh, I mean, we've had similarities before, but I would, I would, wouldn't you agree? This is really the closest. That's definitely that, yeah, very close. Yeah, that our endings have ever been so yeah. far. So let's see if they if they take a turn for the different in our immediate aftermaths. Go ahead and give us yours. Okay, the Earth exploded. <laughs> <laughs> I was so close, so close to taking a drink right when you said that. Ah, <laughs> oh, oh, damn it! I'm glad okay. I didn't. William had thought it all a joke, but after reading the note, his attention was then drawn to the strange symbol. It seemed to fill his entire vision, and then he seemed to be falling, and he now found himself standing in a dark forest. Confused, and a little scared, he started walking. A short while later, he heard a strange noise, and then a flame shot up from the ground. Inconceivable, muttered William. I'm in the fire swamp. (laughs) It was then that he saw eyes in the darkness, rodents of unusual size. William ran, but he was not quite quick enough. The rodents were on him. All seemed lost. And then he heard laughter followed by squeals and the R.O.U.S.'s were lifted from him. Large hands grabbed William and picked him up. Looking around, he saw two figures. One was a huge giant of a man. The other was wiping blood from his sword. Both had a shock of white hair and the smaller figure had scars on each cheek but they were almost hidden by the many wrinkles on his face. The smaller old man stepped forward and a smile blossomed on his face. My name is Inigo Montoya. I'm William. It's good to see you again. I thought his name was Ben, said the giant. Very good, Fezzik, but this is not the time for rhymes. <laughs> William fainted. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right, very good. So well, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> well, yeah, all right. Uh, I'm so glad I got to go second, so I just sound like I'm repeating everything you say. Oh, my God. Okay, go on. What's, uh, what's yours? <laughs> well, there's a flash of light, and Fred disappears. He wakes up and is blinded by the sun. Wasn't he just inside? Suddenly a shadow falls over him and he squints and can just make out the face of what looks like a giant leaning over him. (laughs) Hello, the strange man says. I am Fezzik. You must be Fred. Fred sits up and stutters. I I guess I am. Suddenly a sword is thrust at Fred's chest and a man with long hair says, My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. What? Hey, wait a minute, Fred yells as he scrambles to his feet. I didn't kill anybody. I don't even know where I am or what's going on here. Inigo laughs and says, relax, I am just kidding. Your grandfather told us you would get the joke. I guess he wasn't expecting you to be so disoriented. Where am I? Fred asks. Why, you are in Florin, the greatest country in all the lands. Lord Rutherford of Hoboken is waiting for you. Lord Rutherford, Fred says incredulously. Do you mean Grandpa? Inigo just laughs and says, come along, young prince. There's no time to waste. And that's my immediate aftermath. So God, so they both, both of so they both had, yeah, ended up in the same... Place. Right, with Fezzik and Inigo yeah. being the ones to to greet him. My God. Well, can't wait to see where your long term is going. I already know there's one similarity, so yeah. well, let's see what's going on. Maybe it is all real. Maybe we just tapped into it and it is all That's true. right. That's right. Could be. Yeah. Okay, so my long term. Inigo and Fezzik had explained to William that he used to visit them when he was a child. His grandfather, Frank, had been friends with Wesley many years ago. And, had been the, and he had been the Dread Pirate Roberts for a while when Wesley stepped down. I like that. Yes, Frank had then made it to William's Earth through a strange spell and had fallen in love with an Earth woman. The Princess Bride book served as a way for Frank to keep in touch with his old friends and visit on occasion. Those visits had sometimes included William and he had played with Princess Leia. 
spelt L-E-A-H, <laughs> the daughter of Wesley and Buttercup. Now Leia had gone missing while Wesley and Buttercup were <laughs> off on an expedition to the floating islands of Naboom Boom. Inigo and Fezzik had sent word to Wesley and Buttercup, but had heard nothing yet. They hadn't expected anything either because post Naboom Boom was very tricky. <laughs> they tried finding Leia, but had been unable to find anything except for one thing, a strange hat with the word Cubs written on the front in red letters. That's a Chicago Cubs cap, said William. Ah, said Inigo. So those big cats you call Chicago's, they've got Leia? Uh, not quite, said William, but it means Leia could be on my world. We need to go to my home. We could give a dog a bone, said Fezzik. Aha, cried Inigo. So we could, my unfeasibly large friend. We have a great adventure ahead of us. He slapped William on the book, and the strange trio headed off for destiny. I like it. That's it. Very cool. Well, I'm glad to say we at least veered off for our long terms. So. <laughs> Thank Crikey. <Yeah. laughs> Uh, very well done, though. I like it. Very, very in keeping with the spirit of the book. Excellent. So what's going on then with your your similar story, which now diverges yes. from mine? Well, after a long horse ride, Inigo, Fezzik, and Fred arrive at a large castle. They are ushered into the throne room where a man and two women are sitting with large crowns on plush thrones. Another throne sits off to the side, empty. Welcome, young Fred, the woman says. I am Queen Buttercup, and this is King Wesley. And this is our daughter, Tulip. We have looked forward to this day for many years. Fred smiled at them and noticed that Tulip, a 20-something young lady who was quite beautiful, was smiling. <laughs> Stop it. I'm trying to keep this romantic. <laughs> sorry. Kids yeah. film. Sorry. Kids film. Was smiling radiantly back at him. Just then, an old man makes his way to the empty throne and sits down. Well, it's about damn time, he says. He fixes Fred with a stern glare, but he can't keep a straight face and finally breaks out laughing. Grandpa, Fred yells. He runs up to the old man and gives him a big hug. After a few moments of reuniting, Lord Rutherford, or Lord Grandpa, as Fred quickly takes to calling him, tells Fred that he discovered a magic amulet when he was young that would let him travel into books. Time in the real world would stand still while he was inside having adventures, so he traveled to many worlds and times, but the world of the Princess Bride was always his favorite. When he learned he had terminal cancer, he decided to come live here permanently, but Fred was too young at the time for Lord Grandpa to make that kind of decision for him. So what do you say, kid? You want to come live a life filled with adventure and romance? Are you kidding me, Fred replies. He looks at Tulip, who seems to be hanging on his every word. I've got nothing waiting for me back there. Sign me up. As you wish, Lord Grandpa replies. And that's the end. Brilliant. Thank you, thank you. I like it. So at least we diverged. <laughs> Stop it. At least we diverged yeah, we diverge, at the yeah. end, which I, I feel makes it a little bit a little better. Yeah, yeah. But we both hinted at the fact he's uh, Wesley and Buttercup's daughter and him. Right, and exactly. That, that was that was weird though, wasn't it? The fact it was so yeah, close. Yeah, for sure. Great minds. We could have thought of anything. I mean, yeah, great minds. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. That is the closest we've come. Yes, to so far. definitely, definitely. All right, well, Princess Bride. <laughs> I guess it just you know it's just, it's just it's such a good story that it just makes you want to go in a certain way. I guess you know it's universal. That's right. That's right. All right, Phil. Well, it's time for some princess trivia. So, what do you got? Okay. Well, first of all, I highly recommend that you read uh, the the book by Carrie Elwes, the As You Wish book, which takes you. It's really good. He writes about the you know filming it and everything, what they went through. It's just fascinating, and it's 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 a good fun read as well. Uh, but uh, the names used during the duel are all real fencing terms, you know, Bonetti's defense and all that stuff. That's all yeah. official stuff. Cool. Uh, official terms. Liam Neeson auditioned for the role of Fezzik, but as he was only six foot four, Rob Reiner sort of laughed and said, You're kidding me. <laughs> uh, Uma Thurman auditioned for the role of Buttercup, but she was deemed to be too exotic for the role. And Courtney Cox and Meg Ryan also auditioned, but Robin Wright got the part and everybody was smitten with her. And. Uh, she was smitten with Carrie Elwes. He was smitten with her. That's why the chemistry is so good. And they just, 
It just sounds like everybody had a wonderful time making the film. Uh, Christopher Reeve was also considered for the role of Wesley at one point. Wow. Uh, and over the years, it had been an uh, option to be turned into a film many times. And some people who were working on that were Francois Truffaut, Robert Redford, Norman Jewison, and Richard Lester. Uh, but it, everything ended up falling down and never quite working. And William Golden ended up buying back the rights for the film when uh, the, st the studio that had them put them up for sale again, so we bought them back. Uh, Christopher Guest, who was in This Is Spinal Tap. Yeah, he plays Rugen, uh, who has six fingers on one hand. So you could say that in this film, his fingers go all the way up to 11. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> and that's uh, that's The Princess Bride. Very good. Also, I recommend, if you've never read the novel The Princess Bride, uh, oh, yeah. I yes. highly recommend it. A, it's, it's fantastic. But B, when you read it, you'll see just how faithful the movie is to the book. It's it's one of the most faithful adaptations I've ever seen. It's really uncanny how much of the book they got into the film. Yeah, and you can also see why initially, because of all the failed attempts, many people were saying it was unfilmable. Yeah. Because well, with the way not. the way it is structured, it is a it's a it's a crazy one when you're reading it. Yeah. But yeah. It's very good. Absolutely. All right, there you go. Well that is The Princess Bride and the Hurt Locker. That's going to wrap up our endings. So for now, it is time to move on to our 100 Years of Hollywood and 100 episodes, wherein we take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 films. And this week, we are talking about 2004. So, Phil, climb into that trusty time machine of yours and tell us what was going on in the world just a scant 14 years ago. God, 2004 is 14 years ago. It's that long ago. <laughs> it's what? weird, isn't it? doesn't seem oh. like it. <laughs> Good God. Uh, the RMS Queen Mary II, the largest ocean liner ever built until the next one is, was christened by Queen Elizabeth II. Spaceship One became the first privately funded space plane to achieve space flight. The Cassini-Huygens spacecraft arrived at Saturn. The 2004 Summer Olympics were held in Athens, Greece. Armed robbers stole Edvard Munch's The Scream and other paintings from the Munch Museum in Norway. Explorers reached the bottom of the Krubara Cave. Uh, which is the world's deepest cave at 2,080 metres or 6,824 feet. And the world's tallest bridge, the Millau Viaduct in France, was opened. We also had the births of a couple of Stranger Things in the shape of Millie Bobby Brown and Noah Schnapp. Uh -huh, cool. And sadly, we saw the deaths of Peter Ustinov, Mercedes McCambridge, Estee Lauder, Tony Randall, Ronald Reagan, Ray Charles, Marlon Brando, Francis Crick, Faye Ray, Alma Bernstein, Laura Branigan, Johnny Ramone, Russ Meyer, John Peel, Janet Lee. Rodney Dangerfield and Christopher Reeve. Ooh, tough year. I know. So that's 2004. Made all the tougher by the fact that there wasn't that many great movies out to cheer people up. <laughs> yeah, lots, lots of, lots of watchable films, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it, I, I'm going to say this about 2004. Like you said, a lot of watchable films, but when I looked through the list, I found that um, narrowing it down to ten wasn't. I mean, didn't take a lot. And also of those ten, my number one was pretty clear. And honestly, like my two through. 10 could have all been pretty interchangeable there you know it wasn't one of those years where you're like oh this movie's great and this movie's great how do i pick number one there's so many great yeah, movies it was yeah. kind of like oh i guess i'll figure out in order to put these in <laughs> yeah i know exactly <laughs> what you mean i was the same way just not a not a banner year as far as i'm concerned yes some years are like that though it's strange yeah yeah go figure isn't it some some years it's like you've got five movies you want to put at number one and then other years like this like any other year none of these maybe would have even made my number one yeah. maybe one but oh well. It's the way of the world. Yes, it is. All right, Phil. Well, let's go ahead and see what you've got then. Let's see which of these films uh, did make our top tens. Go ahead and give us your number 10. Okay. Well, my number 10 is a double whammy because both these films, while I enjoyed them 
both were both flawed in different ways but uh, it's the chronicles of riddick is one of them which was the one after pitch black which was it ended up being this huge sprawling sci-fi mess of a film but i i quite enjoy the fact they just they decided to do something different from pitch black and just went balls out and just threw everything they could at it it's a, a mishmash of story elements but it all it all sorts of works i feel but you do have to it's lots of it could be cut but i just like the fact it's so different so weird goes to lots of different places and they just they just tried something different and unfortunately it didn't quite work and the other one at my 10 is uh the punisher starring uh thomas jane as frank castle which i i really enjoyed i thought he was a great punisher uh the scenes with uh, john travolta aren't that hot but the, the bits with uh, Frank becoming the Punisher and the strange goings on and the people he, he comes to know is, is I quite enjoyed. I thought it was a good adaptation of the character. Okay, fair enough. There you go. All right, well, my number 10 is uh, very opposite of those films. It is The Notebook starring Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams. <laughs> I'm going to stop crying. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is a tearjerker, and, I, and some oh, people could, could God, say it is, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a chick flick if you want to call it that. Um, but uh, it's a good movie. You know, it's one of those films. It, it's it's not something I go back and watch all the time because it is definitely make you want to cry. But it, it's a really well done movie. I mean, Ryan Gosling and uh, and Rachel McAdams are terrific. I love the framing device with James Garner and Jenna Rowlands. And, you know, it's a really romantic, heartfelt movie. Um, and, you know, once in a while it's okay to watch a tearjerker. It's a tearjerker, but at least it's not like a, a like maudlin you know, sad yeah, yeah. film. It's got some energy to it. It's got some humor to it. So it, it's a good movie. It's my number 10. It's not like it, you know, cracked the top two, but I thought it deserved a spot. At least this year it did. If it had come yeah. out in a different year, it might not have made it. <laughs> yeah, it took me a while to see the film, but uh, when I did, I enjoyed it. And it does, I cried at the end. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's, but it's, yeah. Because if you don't, was, you're a heartless monster. Yeah, it was a good film. But uh, yeah, didn't make my list. Fair enough. Uh, okay, my number nine is The Incredibles, the Pixar Superhero 1. I'm finally getting a sequel. Uh, it's probably the best Fantastic Four movie we've had so far, uh, but I, I I liked it. It's charming. It's got some good characters. Got a good plot. Uh, I liked it. It's, it's becomes like a spy action movie. Well, we all know The Incredibles anyway, but that's it's my number nine. Good choice. We all know how much I love Disney movies, but this one didn't make my list, actually. Yeah, I didn't think it would. because I, I just never have been that big a fan of this movie. I, I, it's, a, it's a solid film. I don't dislike it at all. Uh, but for a movie by one of the most popular movie studios in the world that's about superheroes, which is really, you know, that's my jam, I should have liked this film more than I did. And I've seen it a couple of times, and I just never warm up to it. So yeah, yeah, didn't make my list. Well, fair enough. Cars is rubbish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, I see how it is. Yeah, so that's that's a throwback. What's people. that? I feel like I can't hear you. Your audio seems to have disappeared. That's what we call a throwback to, you know, Great times. Do like 20 episodes where I've championed that Cars is the greatest Pixar film? Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep it up, Phil. That mute button is real close. Yeah, welcome to After the Ending with Mike Spring. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Don't think I won't, mister. <laughs> now apologize to Cars. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, all right. So. My... <laughs> all right, now I'm serious. Stop it. That was one of those weird electronic audio oh, things. Okay. You know, they say ghosts. The EVP, the EVP yeah. phenomenon. Okay. So my number nine it has already appeared on your list, actually. It is okay. The Chronicles of Riddick, um, yeah, which I, I agree with you. The story is complete garbage. It's almost <laughs> incomprehensible, but it's such yeah. a cool film anyway. Like, it's just so much fun to watch. It, it's one of those films yeah. that you can watch for pure spectacle. The The special effects are, are great. The, the action sequences are big and bombastic. And, you know, you just sort of, you know, 
you you pop it in, you sit back, you check your brain at the door, and you just go along for yeah. the ride. And it's got so many weird characters and yeah, costume designs yeah. and stuff, and you go, "What the heck is that?" Right, and, right, yeah. right. But it's 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 really fun to watch. So I I dig it. It's it's my number nine. Yeah, I think it's yeah. Give it another watch, everybody, because it's yeah. Just check it out again. It's a, it's a weird one. Yeah, just ignore anything like coherence or realism, yeah. and just leave that outside, and just go for the ride, and it, it definitely can be enjoyable. But anyway, okay, yeah, my number eight is uh, Man on Fire. Ah, good choice. But yeah, it's Tony Scott directed film starring uh, uh, Denzel Washington, who's a bit of a depressed special forces guy who ends up taking a job as a bodyguard for a little girl. The girl's played by Dakota Fanning. It's a good film. Denzel Washington's always cool. It's, his character John Creasy is uh, is in a very dark place at the start, and he he works his way through Finds Redemption, but it's uh, great some amazing set pieces uh, it's got the tony scott sheen to it as well but it's it's not quite as dialed up as it can often be with his films but uh yeah great action thriller uh which i really enjoyed yeah good a good choice actually i, I that one just missed my top 10 I, I do like that film i like tony scott very much but it's kind of a dark movie and it's you know i mean i enjoy it but i didn't it didn't quite crack my top 10 fair enough Fair enough. My number eight is a film we just talked about recently, although I'm not sure why, but it is Kill Bill Volume 2 by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, and I know I've told the story at least twice before, so I'll keep it short. I really don't like Kill Bill Volume 1 at all, um, mm-hmm. but I love Kill Bill Volume 2. Go figure. I love the scene where she's trapped underground and it's all in the dark and it's just the sound of it, you know, where she's buried yeah. underground. Like, yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of the, the final showdown with Bill and everything. It's 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 a really great movie. Um, I don't know what went wrong in the first one but i love the second one so that's my number eight an excellent choice uh my number seven is spider-man 2 uh sam raimi is the one with uh dr octopus alfred molina playing it. it was uh so much better than the first film which i also enjoyed uh this one dr octopus was just amazing the effects and everything some great fights uh toby Maguire, uh not quite never quite worked for me but there you go but we had jay jonah jameson uh I'd, lo- I'd love for them to bring back uh jk simmons Jameson, but we'll have to wait and see. But uh, no, I really enjoyed this. Some good action, some good scenes. Maybe could have done with being trimmed a bit to be a bit shorter, but it's my number seven. Good pick. Well, my number seven is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I'm, I'm I like Harry Potter, but I'm not like a crazy big Harry Potter fan or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've enjoyed I enjoyed most all of the films, but I this third one is my favorite of the series uh, for two reasons. One, it's got a little bit of time travel in it, which is always fun. Two, it was directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who went on to direct uh, Gravity and some other great films. And um, I think it, he really brings a different energy to it, especially after the first two, which which I do like, yeah, but yeah. they were directed by Chris Columbus, a little more fr- family-friendly. This was the first one that sort of got into, I think the book, the source material had matured, the cast had matured and the filmmaking matured. And um, I think it's a really fun, dark, very stylish um, entry in the franchise. And it's it's my favorite still of the whole series. Yeah, it had, a, it had its own style compared to the first two, didn't it? It yeah. changed things up a bit. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't make my list, but I do like the Harry Potter films. But yeah, that was... That was the that was one thing sort of kicked up a gear. Right, right. Going, well, okay, this this is kind of cool now. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, an excellent choice, but didn't make my list. But my number six is one which probably won't be on your list, I imagine. But it's the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. <laughs> you know me well. <laughs> yeah, with the Wes Anderson one with uh, Bill Murray doing a Jacques Cousteau kind of thing. Uh, the first time I saw it, I really didn't like it. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah, but I've watched it a few times since, and every time I've watched it, it's I've enjoyed it, it gets, more and it gets more. worse. Oh. No, I've enjoyed it more and more, and it's just it gets sillier and sillier. But it just it works. It's got because there's really bits which you know the uh, the animation of this undersea creatures is just very stop motion and obvious. 
they have these big action scenes which are very uh shot from a, a, a you know fair distance away and they're all a bit it's all a bit of a hodgepodge of what people are doing but it's like a it's a very cool soundtrack which i like as well but it's just there's something about it, it just it's just charming and just lifts up and you got these strange characters doing odd things and it just every time i watch it it's just i seem to be seeing more things and it just really it's really built up over the years and i really do enjoy it and uh, just some great performances as well but uh, i can understand why people don't like it because i know even wes anderson fans often say this is the the one they like the least but uh, there you go but that's my number six so let me get this straight cars is rubbish but the life aquatic which might be the most pointless movie in the history of film is your number six okay all right cars is rubbish Note to self, note to self, find new co-host. Okay. Note to self, find find new podcast. (laughs) Well played, sir. Touche. I've just found one called Cars is Rubbish. (laughs) Sorry, Mike. Sorry. I think I was talking out loud, though. Where Uh, were we? All right. Well, moving on. My number six also has appeared on your list, and it is Spider-Man 2. Um, and much for the same reasons you said, never quite got into Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man and also really not a huge fan of Sam Sam Raimi's tenure with the character. Um, Of the three films he did, this is really the only one that I like. It's it's definitely the best best Spider-Man movie of his trilogy. Um, Alfred Molina is great as Dr. Octopus, and there are some really spectacular action sequences in the film. So um, by far, hands down, the best of the three, Still not a, not close to a perfect Spider-Man film, but um, yeah, but, but good enough lacking, at least. It? So that's yeah. my number six. Excellent. My number five is a National Treasure. Nicholas Cage trying to steal the Declaration of Independence, and I like it because I like a heist movie. I like silliness, and when Nick, Nick Nicholas Cage is on point, he's you can't help but watch him. And I just I just love the hell out of this because I didn't know where it was going the first time I saw it. It's got a hell of a cast: Harvey Keitel, John Voight, Sean Bean, Diane Kruger, just loads of people in it. I love it when you've got to solve the puzzles and things like that, work stuff out, and it's just lots and lots of fun, and it goes all over the place. And Nick Cage is toned down, but he's still Nick Cage. Yeah, yeah, he is. I, I like yeah. that movie a lot, actually. It didn't make my list, only because I, I don't think I've seen it since it came out. I couldn't really remember like how much I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I remember yeah, enjoying yeah, yeah. it quite a bit, but I don't remember if it was like you know worthy enough to include. So I left, I left it off for now, but... Uh, anyway, but good choice. So my Thank number you. five is a tie between two comedies that really both make me laugh out loud, and they are Dodgeball and Eurotrip. And uh, just great. I mean, Dodgeball, they're both very quotable films, but Dodgeball especially has a lot of great quotes. I think um, Jason Bateman and Gary Cole as the sports announcements or you know, oh, yeah. announcers, they really knock it out of the park. And then... Um, oh, that, that has got so... Yeah, Dodgeball. Yeah, it's just... And it's, it's just, you know, Vince, Vince Vaughn is great. And it's just such a great supporting cast with like uh, Alan Tudyk in there and Justin Long and Stephen Root, who's always a great character actor. He's in there, you know, and uh, I read it. I, I, you know, I saw it on ESPN 8, the Ocho. <laughs> Um, just, you know, great. And of course, even Ben Stiller, who I'm not generally a fan of, this is one of him kind of playing his stereotypical caricature characters, yeah, but it, totally it does, works yeah. in this yeah. case. You know, his character is so dumb and so bombastic that it just, you know, it really works. And then Eurotrip is sort of the lesser of 
you know, successful road trip, but it's a funnier movie in my opinion. I know I've seen it, but I can't remember it. Oh my god, it's so funny. It sort of almost plays like a National Lampoon's film, oh, but, okay, but, yeah. but different. But it's got that awesome Matt Damon cameo, and Scotty doesn't know the song that he sings about sleeping with Scotty's girlfriend, which is one of the greatest songs ever. And I, I've had it on heavy rotation on my <laughs> playlist for the last fourteen years, so I, I never don't play that song. It's so great. Um, so that's, uh, that's Eurotrip. I love it. It's really funny and, and not as, as much, not as seen as many of the other films on this list. So if you haven't seen it, track it down like some Friday or Saturday night, get some friends together and watch it. Cause it's really funny. Right. Okay. My number four is Kill Bill volume two. You've already mentioned it on yours, but yes, good uh, choice sequel. I like both the Kill Bill films. Volume two is wildly different to the first one, but it's, I quite like that. The fact that it, it basically, you know, it, it throws out all expectations. You think it's going to go one way and it doesn't, but it has some great flashbacks to when she's learning, uh, learning how to become a ninja assassin kind of thing and you've got all the spaghetti western things going through it but some great performances as you say the bit the bit in the uh in the coffin is haunting michael madsen is great i love his character the whole bit where he knows he's done bad and he's just waiting for the uh the end and also david carradine the whole thing you think it's going to be a huge big all-out battle at the end and it's just the two of them talking about things superman clark kent what have you but it's yeah i really like it and every time i watch this one as well it just gets better and better. A lot like The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, that's my uh, number four. Very good. So yeah, what's your number four? All right, well, my number four is a film we've gone after the ending of. Uh, it's a really, really great science fiction film, even though it stars Will Smith. It is I, Robot, uh, which is directed by Alex Proyas, who gave us The Crow and was really on a great streak of films there for a while. Some some fantastic movies. And uh, it's based yeah, on the classic yeah. Isaac Asimov story. It's got Alan Tudyk, who I just mentioned, um, playing the robot in a motion capture thing. It's just a really cool story about robots and artificial intelligence and sentience. And it, it manages to take this kind of um, really intelligent story and couch it in an action film so that you don't lose the intelligent story, but you still get a great action film out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and even for 2004, the special effects are just fantastic. I mean, yeah, really, yeah, the, yeah, Sonny the Robot looks amazing, and the interaction is is terrific. So it's a film I really like. I mean, it's got Will Smith, it's got Shia LaBeouf, and, and it still manages to come in at number four. <laughs> so that, that tells you something. Yeah, it didn't make my list, but I do enjoy that film. And we went after the ending back in episode 26. There you go. That's a, a great choice. Yes, uh, my number three is... Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Michael Gondry, Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet, Kirsten Dunst, and lots of others. Uh, all about a couple who fall in and out of love, and then to deal with the pain, uh, they go to see the special co- company who removes the memories from their mind and we follow uh we dive into the mind of jim carrey as he realizes what's going on and doesn't want to lose those memories and it's it's a michael gondry film where it's all kind of bizarre things going on in camera special effects happening everything changing uh it's it's a bizarre very cool visual movie with a beautiful love story within there of why people who are in love often fall out of love and it's my number three. I knew that would be on your list. I will confess, I have still never gotten around to seeing this movie, which I know is terrible. It's a very well-loved film, and I, I've always meant to see it. I just never have gotten around to it. You'll so. get to it eventually, but there's always so many films and yeah. so little time. All right, well, my number three is Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. 
Um, and I don't know if I've told the story before or not. I think I have maybe, but I'll, I'll tell it again. I went to see Anchorman in theaters and I hated it. <laughs> really, really didn't like it at all. And then it, it sort of became this cult, you know, classic. And I was kind of like, really, I don't, I don't know if, you know, what, if this movie's all that great. And then sometime around, I would say, gosh, about maybe about 10 years ago at this point, I was sick. I had like a stomach bug. So I was in bed like the whole day and I was miserable and I could not, I could not move. Like I just literally couldn't get out of bed. It was, I was, I was just really, really <laughs> ill. And so I, I put on like the, the, I put the TV on, I think I was on like, you know, TNT or one of these channels and they were doing like a, a semi-marathon of Star Trek movies. So I was like, oh good, I'll just leave that on. And when the Star Trek movies finished, Anchorman came on and I was so, I was so sick. I couldn't even change the channel. Oh my I God. Like, so... I don't even care. I can't man. even reach this. the remote. Oh. Yes. I really, I was just like, I can't even get the energy to roll over and, and change the channel. So I laid there and even in the most like miserable day of my life, I was cracking up watching this movie. Like, I don't know what changed between the first time I saw it and this time, maybe because I was, I was so miserable that just having something funny yeah, like yeah. took my mind off of it. But for whatever reason, it clicked that day, and I I laughed as much as I could anyway. And um and ever since then, I've been a huge fan of that movie, and I've watched it a bunch of times since then. And it really it you know I I still get like whatever clicked clicked and stayed. I made my wife rewatch it, and she kind of gained an appreciation for it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I don't know what it is, but that's that I never liked that movie until I watched it when I felt like I was dying, and then now it's one of my favorites. So that's my number three. Excellent. It almost made my list actually. I had I had Anchorman and Dodgeball as like a a double whammy but it's it kept getting moved down so sure yeah. but it's it is it's one of the I've, i liked it from the beginning uh but it's just lots of fun and so so many it's just so another funny. another highly quotable film. yeah yeah it's great i always feel it sort of loses a bit near the end but it's just uh no a great film lots very funny film yeah uh, my number two is uh shawn of the dead very good directed by edgar wright written by wright and simon Pegg. well we all know it's part it's the beginning of the uh the Cornetto trilogy, and it's a hapless Sean uh, decides to win back his his ex girlfriend during a zombie apocalypse, and hilarity ensues, and beer gets drunk. It's very funny, so well. It's got that Edgar Wright. The way he shoots everything is just really good, and Nick Frost and Simon Pegg together on screen are always wonderful to watch. Uh, it's very funny, very gory as well, and it's it's a great it's a great zombie film and a great comedy film. Indeed, it is, which is not an easy mix to get right. Definitely not. No. All right, well, my number two is a similar film. It certainly sounds the same. It is Dawn of the Dead, Ooh, uh, yes. and that is the one by one Zack Snyder back when he made really good films still. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I really love this movie. I actually I, I just watched it again not that long ago, and it, it holds up extremely well. It was sort of the first film in that whole kind of fast zombies take on the genre, which I know a lot yeah, of the purists yeah. out there don't like. Um, I, I love it. Uh, I think we've talked about this before because I think it makes them way scarier than slow-moving zombies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, But it's, it's a really good – it's a great zombie film, it had, but it has really good characters. It's a terrific cast, and it just is a great update on the, the 1980s you know, George Romero version with these characters trapped in a mall. There's the whole thing with the guy across the way in the gun store. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just – they really did a nice job of making characters that you care about rather than just being zombie fodder. You know, so um, I, I like it a lot, and it was my number two pretty easily. A good choice. I do enjoy that. For a remake, it was pretty good. Uh, didn't quite make my list. It, it was on my um, short list, but uh, didn't make the final ten. But yeah, lots of, as you say, lots of enjoyable bits. I like the bit, I, and it's it, you're great. Uh, you're right, though. It is. 
it does have some good characters and defines them quite quickly. I like the bits as well when they're just sitting on there looking through at the uh, you know all the zombies and calling out Burt Reynolds and shooting that one who looks like Burt Reynolds. <laughs> yeah, right, that kind right, of right. thing. There's some good moments, and the, as you say, the fast zombies do make it scarier. Yes, indeed. I believe it was actually written by James Gunn, if I'm not mistaken, who of course went on to write and direct the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Oh, cool. Also crossover. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, excellent. Uh, my number one though is uh, the Motorcycle Diaries, which is all about 23-year-old uh, Ernesto Guevara, or who later became Che Guevara, about him traveling around South America. Right. And it's it's my number one because it's a beautifully shot film. Gail Garcia Bernal plays uh, the young uh, Guevara, and I just love it. I love love traveling and things. Don't, I'm not able to do it as much as used to, but uh, I traveled around Peru with my dad, and so watch, I went to see this with him as well, and it was just a sense of adventure, and traveling through and things going wrong and meeting people and going to bars and meeting other people and just having cool experiences in this totally different places and stunning uh, scenery. It just really spoke to me and I, I just I just liked it. Also learned a bit about Che Guevara, which I didn't know before, uh, but it's just beautifully shot, beautifully acted. And a beautiful film. Very nicely uh, put. I have not seen that film actually, uh, and and honestly, I never really had much interest in seeing it. To be to be fair, I, I just didn't ever seem like my kind of movie. It wasn't one that I was really interested in. Yeah, it's sort of. I think it was sort of marketed a bit. Uh, it did, the marketing was a bit off, I think, for it. But uh, I I just like it. And if you like travel, it's just it's just interesting and yeah, yeah, some great moments. It's one of those ones where it's sort of you could just sit back and let it wash over you or you can sit up and watch it and pay attention and things like that it works on both levels right and, right yeah cool that's my number one well i'll have to check that out yes please do all right well my number one appeared on your list and it appeared just recently it was Shaun of the dead oh, i thought it might be yes it yes. almost just, that was almost my number one they went back and forth right so, so yeah. So our three of our top four films were Shaun of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Shaun of the Dead. Yes, yes. That's a whole lot of dead. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, everything you said obviously applies. This is one of those movies that I like to be able to brag about, because I not brag, but I saw it in theaters, which not a lot of people can yeah, say, because yeah. it was really, it really gained its fan following on video. Um, but I happened to go see it on opening night in a in a theater, so uh, that was a fun experience. So I think that that certainly increased my fandom of the film from early on because it sort of as I watched it grow and become more popular, it was like I've seen it, I love it, it's a great film. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's funny, it's it's touching. I think there's some really touching moments in there with his with his mom, with his with you know with his best friend and everything. So, uh, but really just gets all the zombie stuff right and managed to be really funny at the same time, which is such a hard thing to pull off horror comedies so um but yeah i i love this film i know a lot of people love it i don't think it'll be a big surprise to anybody yeah it does it gets the balance it just does the balance perfectly yeah yeah for it's, sure it's crazy how well it does uh but yeah it, uh, i had a feeling it'd be your number one that's not a bad list either no not bad at all so there you go that is our top 10 films of 2004 such as it is uh, and with that, we are going to start to bring the proceedings to a close. Uh, but before we do that, Phil, why don't you tell people what we're going to talk about next week? Okay, then. So next week, we're going to be going after the ending of Interstellar and Pineapple Express, two films which are practically exactly the same. Yes, yes. And uh, we'll be doing our top 10 favorite films of 1995. Indeed, should be a fun episode. Maybe we'll avoid having the exact same endings for one of the films this time. But who knows, because it all just comes down to the genius that is our two minds that is true and it's hard to deny that much genius isn't it well it's inconceivable <laughs> all right well on that note it's time for us to head out so as always we thank you greatly for listening i'm mike spring and i'm anigo montoya and <laughs> we'll see you next week after the ending and my name is phil edwards 
My name is Phil Edwards. We just worked it all out, Phil. Well, you know, you know what they say. Uh, da, da, da. I don't know. Forget, forget that. <laughs> you know what they say. Yeah. I don't know what they say, but you know yeah. what they say. So I don't. I don't have to say it. <laughs> right. No, leave that out. That's Did not very you? nice. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I'll, I will. I will. Believe me, I will yeah. take that out for you. Yes. <laughs> so no, no right. more. I'll make a note. No more jokes. Up. <laughs> Damn, that's the whole of my long term. There, there goes your stand-up routine. Yeah. But he now has a purpose. He's helping Coleman secure. It would have been so awesome. I'm sorry. I just think it was so awesome. You said he was still using crutches, but now he had a porpoise, <laughs> and he had like like a, like a support dolphin. Now, you know? yeah, now <laughs> he rides around on a porpoise to, uh, you know, or is it a dolphin? Well, yeah, yeah. mostly the same thing, yeah. but you know, it's like a seeing a seeing eye dog. I don't I don't need a support therapy dog. I need a support porpoise. Get, get Sergeant James in here. That's he's on the back of his he's on the back of his porpoise. Uh, well, get the tank in as well. <laughs> That's a little. (laughs) Those are terrible porpoise noises. Let's not do that ever again. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded like something horrible was going on.